Good morning, everybody. And I'll borrow Carlo's stand here and try not to mess him up. If you're new with us, I want to add my welcome to you. As you heard, my name is Brady, and uh, it's my joy and privilege to share the word with you this morning. If you're new, we're in a, we're in a series on the book of Acts. And in Greek, the word Acts is praxis. Uh, the, the Acts of the Apostles was the uh, original title of the book. And praxis has to do with how you put into day-to-day, tangible, real-life ideas or plans or, or worldviews or uh, you know, that kind of thing and make them real in the world. And Acts is where we get to see the first followers of Jesus putting into practice the revolution of Jesus' vision and person about himself and the kingdom of God. And so I want to take us to today's text, and it'll be on the screen, but you can also, uh, well, you can't follow it in your Bibles today because we'll be jumping around a bit. So just follow it on the screen might be the easiest. Acts chapter 6 is where we are at, beginning with verse 8, and we'll end in uh, chapter 8. Ready? Ooh, you're quiet today. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexander, and Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about him, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This aroused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. And so they arrested Stephen, and they brought him before the high council. Then chapter 7, verse 1 through 53, you can read Stephen's witness to the Sanhedrin, a panoramic view of God's salvation history with Israel leading to the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. We'll pick it up in Acts 7.54. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him, and they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of brutal persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women, to throw them into prison. 
But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. The last time that we saw Stephen and Philip was in the earlier part of Acts 6 that we talked about last week. They were part of a happy solution to a difficult situation. There, their lives were described to us as being full of the Spirit and of wisdom. These men's lives were so marked by the shaping power of the Spirit of Jesus that they had gained the wide respect of the community, both within the faith and those in the broader Jewish world of Jerusalem. Now we find them flung into very different circumstances. And who they are and what they truly believe is suddenly put to the test. I like to put myself in these stories to try to get a feel of it better. And, you know, I was struck as I read this that while this is clearly a story about martyrdom and about preaching the truth and all that, I was struck that also fundamentally this is a story about how two men faced change and transition. For Stephen, it's a transition in the way that Time Magazine talks about transitions on their one to two pages each week where they talk about the death of people of notoriety. And this is what Stephen's transition is. Stephen faces a transition called a faith-filled death. His life, a blazing candle too quickly snuffed out by the hearts and anger of men. Too quickly, but not forgotten, and not without its influence. The story of Philip is a different kind of story. It's longer, it's more complex, and it probably won't ever be made into a movie. You know? uh, Stephen's life could be made into you know, Braveheart 2 or something, but you know, Philip, uh, you know, life of the plotter or something. But you know, Philip does exactly what Stephen does. Philip in his life gives his life over fully. He is devoted to the work, the person of Jesus Christ and the mission of the community of Jesus in the world. If you follow Philip's story through the book of Acts, you'll start as we did today in Jerusalem. You'll move with him to Samaria. Then you'll move with him to uh, Joppa down in the Gaza Strip in in the south of Israel in Judea. Eventually, his spirit, his word of Jesus will move into Ethiopia through an Ethiopian eunuch who's the treasure to the queen of Ethiopia. And finally, you'll end up with him in Caesarea on the coast of Israel, where he lives with his four prophetically gifted daughters. Can you imagine the dynamics of that household? Four prophetic daughters... A father would have to be very cautious when he says, I don't agree with you. (laughs) Stephen and Philip are wonderful examples of living a devoted life to Christ and his mission that's worthy of our emulation. But for the rest of our time today, I want to focus on this reality of facing change and transition. I've been pondering this idea for some time, and I hope my ponderings will help us as a community and as individuals. So, ponderings on responding wisely and faithfully to transition or change. First, I think we need to become 
spiritual realists. We need to embrace the fact that change and transition are inevitable. We all know that, but do we embrace it? You know, I'm not particularly fond of change by nature or whatever. I'm a person who likes to put his roots down, stay in one place. I like stability. I'm, I'm a creature of habit. At least I like stability as long as it's pleasant stability. But I know that change and transitions are inevitable. If nothing else, looking in the mirror tells me that. And I know that if I'm going to finish my personal race well, my race of following Jesus and being a helpful example to those around me in the community of Jesus, then I, like Stephen and Philip, must learn how to respond to change in a wise and mature way. Second thought. Some transitions are needful, some wanted, but all of them entail the pain of loss. Or so says our consultant, John Zimmerman, who shared with all of us one day in the staff and the elders and the deacons with this statement, all change is experienced as loss. I thought, yeah, maybe a bit of hyperbole there, you know. But the more I think about it, the more I think that there's a deep truth here. Maybe not all the time, but certainly most of the time, change carries with it a sense to some degree of loss. Even the most happy and blessed of changes. My son Micah, our eldest son, and his wife Tara wanted a baby. And so, grandbaby, there it is. Grandbaby number 10 showed up. We, with three children, have kept up with the Kulmers. Uh, we too have 10. What a wonderful change. But there are losses uh, the loss of sleep, you know, the loss of carefree mobility. Uh, the added weight of being responsible for another person who's so vulnerable and so dependent. Uh, the added weight on the car of packing all the stuff for the kid. So even good, anticipated, desired, worked toward, wanted changes carry some level of challenge and loss. Think of the years of diligent loving and self-giving work that good parents pour into their kids simply to enable their kids to eventually break their heart by leaving them. Here is joy and mingled come down together. Joy and sorrow, excuse me. You know, there's a sense of loss in the empty nest. Of course... I think this is surely why God created adolescence. It's so truly loving parents will let their children grow and go. So in our lives, we have all kinds of wanted and unwanted challenges and transitions. But what really matters is how you and I allow them to shape us for better or for worse. And that leads me to my third thought. You and I must embrace that transitions can be dangerous. That transitions carry with them the opportunity for the transition or the change to be used by the powers of evil to tempt us to wise 
and destructive pathways. Let's look at the positive side first. Think of Stephen and Philip and the upheaval, the havoc that's being brought into the young community of Jesus, this community committed to peace and love in the city of Jerusalem. Look what it reveals about them. And I think it's something we should all consciously seek. They possess a wonderful essential quality that is found in those who are spiritually maturing in their character. I'd simply call it the quality of being steady. They were steady in their spirit before they were chosen out of the community and confirmed as servant leaders by the apostles. And here now we see them steady, not in a time of joy and, and, and kind of an opportunity and growth of life, but in a time of deep trouble. You know, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, who will lead the communities of Jesus in truth and in courage in the Western world, in North America, where the foundations are being so aggressively shaken and chopped away at? Who will be the ones who will steadily hold the course of theological revelation and truth, even though it costs them greatly? Who will be the ones that will have a steady life, that those who are shaken and unsteady could find a confidence or an, a big, a, an example to emulate in their lives? So I thought this might be something worth our, as a community, in our individual prayers to kind of pray ponder this week, to ask ourselves, am I steady or am I a situational Christian? Am I moral because of my situation? You know, am I sexually moral because I'm married? Or am I moral because I'm committed to a certain kind of life in Christ that says that I will stand for the good and I will flee evil? Am I sexually pure because I'm married? Or is it because I've submitted to the Lord's vision of living a life of loving self-control and steady faithfulness? What kind of person are you and I becoming? People like these two young men? Or are we part of the rattled and the shaken of the culture? Something to pray about. You know, this idea of uh, how steady we are made me think some about, you know, are we set up for weakness? Are we being set up in our culture for failure? When I think about friends and people I've known in counseling who have come to Shirley or myself and said, you know, we're leaving one another because we've fallen out of love. I want to suggest to you that isn't the language of the heart of God. You know this. That isn't the language of steady faithfulness. That's the language of somebody who's been set up by Disneyland fantasies and by romantic chick flicks to believe that love is an easily acquired, lasting, emotional, empowered joy ride. And when people find out it's not, they abandon it. I think we should think about lasting love, be it toward a spouse or toward one another in the community of Jesus or towards Jesus himself, that lifelong love should be thought of a masterpiece. I think of Michelangelo when Shirley and I got to see the chapel, the Sistine Chapel ceiling. What an amazing piece of work. 
You know, it took him agonizing years to paint that thing. Much of it laying painfully on his back with paint dripping into his eyes. It took him hours upon hours to, in agony and all, to finally come to the glory. And what a wonderful, fabulous outcome. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the people of Jesus in North America would think of their lives as being something that takes, that has the end goal of becoming a masterpiece, a masterpiece of lifelong love. There will be agony, and there will be triumph. There may even be ecstasy. And if we will hold the course, if we will hold it in our relationship to children, to mates, to friends, and to fellow community members, if we will hold the course, then God will make something beautiful out of our lives and something that will bring healing to the nations like he did with Therese, who is my beloved Therese, Mother Therese of Colombo, who God took something and put steady in it and is changing that part of the world. Think of the person, it always brings sadness to me when students come and I hear them say, you know, I tried Jesus and he didn't work. I think they've been set up somewhere along the way. What did they expect that God was supposed to do that didn't work? I think probably, or at least my experience of talking with students who will talk about this, that what they expected was a kind of a smattering of cultural religious church myths where people, you know, maybe unintentionally, or pastors as well, where they take a scripture here and a scripture there and they knit it together into a kind of a strange promise thing called a promise box. And it's kind of mere spiritual fantasies because it doesn't take the whole counsel of God. Maybe where God isn't working in our lives is in places that he ever said that was what his work was. Maybe we believe that he's supposed to give us the American dream. Where he really wants to do is cause his kingdom to triumph. I think about the epidemic in North American churches where people are abandoning the communities of faith right and left because they've been hurt by others in the community. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. I think about Stephen. I think about his death, his final statements. If he, can, if he can forgive his profoundly misguided and wicked executioners, people who were part of his people, surely then we can find the grace and the commitment to stay the course and work out our real hurts, our failures as mere human beings as we seek to become more like Christ. We should seek out Ephesians 4, 3, where Paul exhorts us to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. Can we love enough to forgive? Can we love enough to not flee? You know, in leaving, there's an added danger, I think, that we have to be aware of. is because when I leave, then I don't work out the hurts and all that I might have, the woundings and the offenses that come from others, or the wounding and offense that I give, maybe even. 
Of course, I don't think about that because it doesn't hurt me. But nevertheless, it's true. We add the extra danger that we never work out these things. Not only do we suppress the word of Jesus that tells us to forgive one another even as we're forgiven, but we also suppress the opportunity of Jesus to heal us up in a proper way. We're in grave danger when we leave to be frozen in our anger and our disappointments and unforgiveness. That's the perfect soil of the heart to grow seeds of bitterness that defile us and will defile others when they rub against us. I thought particularly of you young people who have a lot of life in front of you, there will be ecstasy and there will be times of real hurt and pain. I pray you will be better than my generation who have left at the drop of a penny. And do not work out in reconciliation the commands of God. And so the communities of Jesus all over the fruited plain are weakened and made to look less than hopeful. You know, if you leave in bitterness and all, you end up fulfilling, I've seen it over and over again, Bono's lyric, you are stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it. How many people are stuck and so they have to go to counselors to try to help them get out of the moment of their anger and their bitterness and their disappointments? Forgiveness might be an easier way. In the American church today, it doesn't even take bad news, you know. I heard a story, surely I heard a story recently, where a pastor retired happily after a fabulous leadership of a community, a quite large community here in the state. And it's taken the church a number of years to recover. It's actually a statistical fact in North America that 25 to 30% of people leave their communities whenever there's a transition, whether it's a positive or a negative one. And 40% of the support of the church is lost during these transitional times. Are we having one of those? No. But are we ready for it? Are we ready to be different than the statistics of the immaturity? Are we committed just to our own, oh, I want a pastor that I like, that'll preach the way I want? Or are we committed to one another in the bond of love? That's the challenge I think the church in North America faces and we face. And so I want you to pray, ponder this. How have I or we as a church been set up to be weak or ill, illy, excuse me, prepared to face challenges that are inevitably going to come. Finally, fourth thought, we need to milk every circumstance of change and transition for all of its good ends. I grew up as a boy. I know you have to milk a cow in the morning and in the evening. doesn't matter, rain, shine, or anything else. You better milk. It's very, very hard on the cow if you don't. You know. So it's a kind of thing that I've learned to do. Get the milk out of the cow. You know, Scripture says, if, you, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Okay, no, Scripture doesn't say that. It's an American proverb, okay? But I think some prophet would have said it or should have said it because it's true. What will you do with change and transitions that are difficult? If both Stephen and Philip's lives, in both their lives, we see the outworking of Paul's confident declaration in Romans 8 28 for God by his mighty power forces all things to work out good in 
those who are called into his life and purposes. Notice Paul does not say that all things are good. Rather, he says that God can forge goodness in our lives even as we face the sorrows and the chaos of evil in our world. Stephen's death is a good death of faithfulness. And he maybe had in his heart and mind those words ringing where Jesus says, If I go, I go to prepare a place to you, for you that you might come and be with me for all of time. Philip, in spite of the evil death of Stephen and the flight from Jerusalem, his home, the Lord took the sorrowing Philip and brought joy to Samaria. He took Philip and had him go down and encounter an Ethiopian eunuch. And church tradition tells us that that unnamed eunuch, who is a treasurer of Ethiopia, would be the one who would go to a far distant land in Africa and would pioneer the church of Jesus Christ in that culture. God used him in his sorrow and his weakness but built in others joy and hope and understanding and belonging to the work of God. You know, I think about my Betty, Kim Sherwood, who lost a son a bunch of years ago, 10 or more now. And uh, we processed this loss that's always there. And then one day we were walking and he says, yeah, I called my cousin today, or yesterday, right? And I says, oh, who's your cousin? Oh, she lives in California. I says, well, what'd you call her about? I says, well, she lost her husband the same way I lost my son. And God used such a deep sorrow for Kim to be a minister of compassion to another woman in crisis. God can take the worst junk in our lives and turn it into the stuff that grows hope for others. Wanting to end on a happy note. I also thought of Jack and Shirley Hunt, who are growing old. You may not notice it, doesn't look like it, but we hear rumor that they are growing old. A while back, they moved out of their home where all kinds of life had taken place over many, many years, and they moved into an assisted living kind of community where they've got lots of flexibility and all. And guess what they're doing in this new situation? This kind of situation we'd say, oh, that's a change I don't ever want to go through, surely. I don't ever want to leave 1720 James Street. But they left. And they just let the Holy Spirit anoint them as chaplains of their living center. And so I've heard words and stories about them wandering up and down the hallways, ministering to the aging ones around them, the hope and the encouragement of Jesus. They are in spirit saying, lemonade anyone? And they're bringing hope to the people who are on the precipice of the most significant transition of life. The transition into life. The transition into death 
and judgment. But here they are, full of joy. Full of joy that God has put them in a new place to serve. It made me want to pray, ponder, Lord, what do you want me, by the power of your Spirit, to learn and to do in light of the transitions that I have been flung into? May God help us grow. I think that's probably enough milk and meat for the day, don't you? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we stand before you and we ask that you would indeed pour out your spirit on us. That you would indeed make us strong in your spirit. That you would make us be carried along in the challenges of our world with the joy, the hope, and the comfort of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, be honored in the way we live toward you, one another, and in the world.